So uh, some psychologists did this experiment in uh, the late 80s. It's been replicated a couple of times. It, it actually works. But imagine um, that you're, uh, you're excited about um, you know, the, the, the new movie that's coming out. It's, you know, it's Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is playing Tom Cruise in a Tom Cruise movie. Um, and he's very earnest. Um, there's probably a corrupt government organization. Maybe a mystery needs to be solved. Probably a love interest. And Tom Cruise, and you're, you're, you're excited. You can't wait. Um, and so you're, you're really excited. Your friends are excited. And so you're going to go and you're going to see this film. And you have two choices. You have two choices. The first choice um, is a, a megaplex. Um, it's the Irvine Spectrum. Uh, it's got 21 screens. Um, and there are, there are many movies, 18 movies all playing. And, and they're, they're playing the, the brand new Tom Cruise uh, movie at, at 7.30. That sounds good. Then there's another one. Uh, there's a, um, there's a, a, a movie theater, at, I think in Newport, they just reopened the, the Lido Theater. It's, it's got only one screen. It's only one screen. It's Art Deco. It's kind of um, it's kind of in a really cool uh, area, and so it's kind of a hipster scene. And, uh, and and they're also playing the new Tom Cruise movie at 7:30 p.m. Now, if you were able to make all things equal and not worry about where you're going to eat, and you know, not worry about uh, where the the hip spot to be is, which movie theater would you choose? The one with 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 all the screens, or just one screen? It turns out that even though there's absolutely no difference, they have the same sound, the same digital projection, uh, they have the, it, it, you can put it in the same area with the same uh, opportunities to eat, all of that can be exactly the same. And the majority, the vast majority of people will choose to go to the Irvine Spectrum because it has more screens and they want to have more choices. Isn't that strange? There, this article, this essay, this, uh, this, this study, it's called The Lure of Choice. Um, and it's what we're talking about today. Uh, a, couple of, a couple of just interesting facts. So um, in, uh, in, in 1960, right, uh, they, they, they took the average age of uh, your first marriage, right? And in 1960, if you were um, a, a man, you would probably get married at the age of 23. And if you were a woman, you'd get married your first time at the age of 20. Now, uh, in, 19, er, in 2016, this year, that has changed to 28 years old for men and 26 years old for women. Aaron and I were slightly ahead of the curve. Uh, when we got married in 2009, I was just about, I was three days from turning uh, 28 years old, and she, um, I don't know how old she is, she was, she was probably 19. No, no, she was actually a little bit older than that. Uh, but she, we, were, we were right in with the 2016 data. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that strange? Not strange. Um, childbearing. Uh, the research says that in 1970, uh, the, a- the average age of a woman at the first birth, or the first child was born, uh, she, she was... Um, she was 21 years old. So she got married at 20, 21, had her first child. Today, 2016, she's 26.5, 27 years old at the, the average age of her first child. 81% of millennials say that they have no loyalty to any brand. Um, they don't care what the name on the label is. They're looking for the best deal. They're looking for the... This is a, this is a dramatic change. In the 1950s and 1960s, one of the things that, um, that, that the corporations would do is they would try to get you to, to buy into their brand at a young age and you would stay faithful. If you were an Old Spice man, you stayed an Old Spice man. <laughs> Nowadays, you just look for the best deal and you say, whatever. It all kind of smells the same anyway. 
70% of millennials um, think, they self-identify, they think that they are less loyal to anything, institutions, uh, brands, anything, than their parents or other generations. Why? Why? Why these trends? Well, it's, I believe, writ large, the question of the megaplex. Why is the spectrum better than the one movie screen theater? It's because we want choice. Why do we want choice? Why do we, why do we need that? We already know which movie we're going to see. Why is it so important to continue to have choices? Why? Because we want to keep our options open. There's something fundamental about us, and maybe it's United States, maybe it's North America, we don't have the data um, for, for other countries, but there's something fundamental about us where our culture, this is the first thing you're no cheats, our culture is committed to the belief that keeping options open is better and more satisfying than fulfilling commitments. Our culture is committed to the belief that keeping options open is better and more satisfying than fulfilling commitments. We know this intuitively. We know how good it feels to know that you're not locked in yet. If Aaron and I, we, we get in the car, and we leave the house, and we still don't know where we're going to eat. And so every choice, we hate it because it closes down options. If I turn left, then we can't go there. Ah, what am I going to do? Well, let's just sit at the stop sign, think about it, go on Yelp, you know, and, and postpone the choice as long as you can, because as soon as you've done it, what have you lost? You've lost your freedom, Right? You're locked in. You're committed now. And you can't have all those things. This is becoming more and more prevalent as uh, millennials age. We, we see them into emergent, uh, adult, emerging adulthood, extended adolescence. We see um, in, in uh, the loyalty uh, of people towards their company, uh, uh, job changes are more frequent now than they've ever been. Um, we see it uh, even when we're raising kids. We see how kids go from one activity to the next and nothing ever really settles deeply. It's like, well, let's try this, we'll try that, we'll try this, we'll try that. Um, you change your gym membership, you change your church, you church shop. That's a thing now. In 1950, nobody knew what church shopping was. Because you were, what? You were Methodist, and so you went to the Methodist church. Constantly moving. People move from place to place to place. Mobility is greater than it's ever been at every age. Over and over we see a constant desire for people to keep their options open. This is a little bit ironic. Because if you read deeply in the scriptures, you see that God is exactly the opposite. God is fundamentally a God of commitment. God jumps in early and stays committed regardless of the cost. And what's even crazier is the scriptures tell us that this is something that brings him joy. Let's look at Ephesians uh, 1, 8b to 10. Um, this is a translation that we did uh, together earlier in the year, um, so you can, you, can, you can see it. It says, with all wisdom and insight, God has revealed to us the mystery of his will because it brought him joy to do so. He set forward in Christ the master plan that when the times were ripe, he might sum everything up in Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth in him, Jesus. 
I think that, that locked in to this text, and, and we're going to think about it uh, critically for a little while, I think we're going to see that there's something interesting, there's something powerful about commitment that we might, mo- we might miss, we might lose it, because we're so focused on, on freedom and choice that we miss something that God understands about commitment, that God knows about commitment, that we don't. The first uh, phrase there, wisdom and insight, this is, um, this is a theme that comes throughout scripture. So like if you're in the Proverbs, it's amazing how interested and how much God loves wisdom. He, he thinks it's powerful. It's even said that the creation itself is a function of God's wise, um, uh, wise ordering of things. And why is that? Why, why, what, is, what is it so interesting about uh, creation? You know, if you remember um, in Genesis 1, there's this, this phrase that comes over and over, and it's an interesting phrase. It said, God saw that it was good. So Genesis 1 is the story of creation, and God, uh, with all wisdom and insight, is, is creating the universe. And every time he does something, he looks at it and he sees that it's good. Why? Why? What is this? What's so great about, I mean, okay, peacocks, those are obviously good. Uh, but there's some really, I mean, anacondas? Really? Is that? I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, or, or for that matter, cold weather. I mean, what a terrible choice. Or for that matter, hot weather. Uh, I am never leaving Orange, Orange County. Keep it at 72. What? Well, let me, let me, so let's think about some of the things that, that, that God does, right? So he's, he's creating, and, and then he, he creates all the, the lights in the sky, right? And then he also creates um, uh, land and air and sea. He kind of divides up, almost, all of the stuff that's out there, right? And as a result, every like, living creature has a place to be, right? So the birds, they're, they're, they're in the air, right? And the land creatures are on the land, and the fish are in the sea, um, and, and this is because God, God is really committed in his core being to, um, to order and structure. God really likes things that, that, that fit together, that are structured, that have rhythm, that are, that are ordered. They're not out of control. God likes that, and he's committed to that value. This comes from his own nature. We say that God is one, right? God is one. God is unified in God's self. God is a being of pure unity. And this, this shows up in the way that he creates an ordered, structured universe, Right? But notice also that birds don't always stay in the air. Sometimes they come down and hang out. Notice also that uh, animals sometimes make large leaps. Sometimes land-bearing creatures like to take a swim. Not my dog, she's too small, but many dogs do. They like to get in the water. Sometimes amphibians like to get out of the water for a while and, you know, uh, roll around the sun. So there's, there's, some, there's some movement there. Or think about this. Think that, that there are tides, right? And, and the tides are, are you know, there's the, the beach line is pretty much constant. And yet, and yet sometimes there's a tsunami. And so the, the beach changes. It gets farther in. Sometimes the water's lower. And, and sometimes even, uh, you know, where land was, it, there's more land because the water's lower. There's variety, right? There's variety. Or think about this. You know, there's the sun and moon day and night, and that's pretty consistent, right? Unless you're in Alaska, where sometimes it's daylight all day and all night. There's some variety there. There's some, there's some interesting um, uh, creativity, some, some differentiation. This, too, is fundamentally a part of God's character. It's something he's committed to. He's committed to this because God is also three, Right? God is differentiated even within God's self. There's Father, Son, and Spirit. They each have a different role to play, and yet they're also one. And so God's balancing two commitments. He has a commitment to creativity and differentiation, and he also has a commitment to unity and order and rules and structure and rhythm. And how does that work together? 
Well, we see it in the world we look at. And God looks at that world. He sees a reflection of his own nature and says, this is great. My commitment to this thing, differentiation, variety, creativity, and my commitment to this thing, structure, unity, order, come together in a fascinating way. And when I look at the world I've made, it's good. It works. The world we have works because God is faithfully committed to two things. And he's, he's going to fulfill them somehow. It's a tension. It's confusing. It's not quite sure. We're not quite sure how it's going to work out, but God's committed to it. Faithful commitment inspires creative fulfillment. It's the next thing in your notes. Faithful commitment inspires creative fulfillment. Because God is committed to two things, he has to find a way to make them work. And the result is something creative and beautiful and wonderful, the, the, the world we live in. This is God's wisdom and insight in Ephesians. He's peering down and he has a, an ability to see what it would take to make something really interesting and really beautiful in keeping with his commitments. With all wisdom and insight, God has revealed to us the mystery of his will because it brought him joy to do so. He set forward in Christ the master plan that when the times were right, he might sum everything up in, in heaven on earth in him. There's this, uh, I was talking to my dad. My dad, he's a history buff. And he's going to be mad. Well, he's not here, thank goodness, because when I tell history stories, I always tell them wrong. I get my facts mixed up. And so when he hears them, sometimes he listens to them on the internet and he gets mad at me. He's like, why don't you talk to me first? I'm like, well, uh, you, you, you've, seen, uh, the, you've seen the Panama Canal? Look at that thing. Wow. It was finished in 1914. Um, incredible, incredible. It was actually started in the 1880s uh, by the French. Um, and, and the French... Um, they, 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 put tw- they, they killed 20,000 people trying to make this thing. They blew $287 million, and in, eight, in, ni- in 1880s dollars, that's a, f- that's a fantastic amount of money. Uh, it's just mind-boggling. And at the end of the day, the French were like, you know what, forget it. Why bother? Teddy Roosevelt, he's a, he was a, um, one of our presidents, known for being um, a, a wild, excited man's man. Teddy Roosevelt... Uh, was looking at the state of the world. And he saw in his mind, he saw the United States becoming a world power. He had been involved in some wars. Uh, the Spanish-American War uh, was, was about to take place uh, during this time. This is about ni- 19, 1900, 1902, somewhere in there. And he sees the way that um, markets are opening up. And he has this vision, this, this beautiful vision of the United States being this incredible power for, for justice and for goodness in the world. But there's a problem. The problem is that we have a, it takes us a long time to get from here to there. When, when fighting in the, in the Philippines uh, during the Spanish-American War, it was really difficult to get the Navy from one ocean to the next. People were losing, you know, in, in 18 $1,900, millions of dollars in trade because they weren't able to get from one place to the next. And Teddy Roosevelt, above all, was committed, committed, to the United States being a world power, to the United States being an economic power. And he looked at those 20,000 dead uh, Frenchmen and indigenous workers, and he looked at that $287 million, and he said, we can do better. 
We can do it. Well, there were some problems, though. There were problems. Um, there was one problem was that the uh, Panamanian government, uh, or I'm sorry, the Colombian government, who at the time owned Panama, was like, nah, we like this land the way it is. We're not going to give it to you. We're not going to deal with you. And so, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, well, oh, well, shucks, and put his hands in his pockets and walked away and figured out something. No, that's not what he did, because Teddy Roosevelt was committed, committed to United States supremacy, global ec- economy, a powerful navy. He was committed to these things, and so you know what he did? He got creative. He started a revolution in Panama. He, he and the Panamanian people got together, and they, they fomented a rebellion, and then, because Teddy Roosevelt wasn't sure that was going to take off, he went and he gave $50 to every single Colombian soldier to put their guns down and not fight. It was the fastest revolution that's ever taken place. But he wasn't done there. He wasn't done there. Before he did that, he said, All right, you know what? They're going to need a constitution. So, hey, guys, can we write them a constitution? Done. Panama has its own constitution. In fact, one of the Panamanians' wife was the one who, who knitted their first flag. The flag was done before the revolution was over. A creative fulfillment of his commitment. 20,000 French dead. Why? Because of malaria. It turns out that Panama, um, the swamps there were just infested with mosquitoes. And the mosquitoes would feast on flesh, on human flesh. And, and, and even with, with world-class hospitals, people were still dying by the scores to the point that the French gave up. And Teddy Roosevelt saw that and he said, oh, it's too hard, we can't fix this, and he moved on. No! Teddy Roosevelt was committed. And so he got one of the world's leading expert on preventing malaria, and that guy went down to Panama, and he, instead of digging a canal, he first drained all the swamps, killed all the bugs with pesticides, just like completely altered the face of Panama in order to make sure that the workers would be safe. Malaria subsides. The work continues. The last problem, the one I don't fully understand because I'm not an engineer, is that in order to have a canal connecting one ocean to the next, um, you have to sort of make sure that it doesn't flood on the way through. There was like a, a river that would cross it. And originally uh, in Panama, right, where the, the place where they're making the canal, uh, the, the land got up to about 85 feet above sea level. And the French idea was just to just do a canyon right across, um, and so that there would be sides of land up 85 feet above sea level. Well, it turned out that this led to an enormous amount of flooding, and it was one of the reasons the mosquitoes you know, feasted on, on, on human flesh. And so what they ended up doing is they ended up constructing, at, at the time, a world-class feat of engineering to get locks that would raise boats as they went across 85 feet, a, a series of three locks, to get them up to, to, to the level of the ground so that there was no flooding, and then go across, and then another set of three uh, locks that would move them down back to sea level, and they would move through into the other ocean. At the time, this was an unheard of feat of civil and structural and land and all the different types of engineering. Pretty creative plan. Because Teddy Roosevelt was committed to the United States Navy and the United States economy. The mystery of his will, the master plan Paul talks about in Ephesians. It's this ultra-complicated, totally unbelievable, totally incredible way that God works everything out for people. Why is it so mysterious? Why is it so confusing and, and crazy? 
It's because it's impossible from our perspective. Because God's committed to things that don't seem to work together. God's committed to being the God of Israel, never quitting being the God of Israel. He's also committed to setting things right in the world, to making the world the way it ought to be. He's also committed to all the nations, the Gentiles. He's also committed to justice, and he's committed to righteousness. He's also committed to love and mercy. He has all these different commitments, and it seems like he can't fulfill them all. Because it seems like if you're going to be loyal to Israel, you can't be loyal to the nations. And it seems like if you're going to be loyal to justice and righteousness in human hearts, you can't find a way to be loving and merciful. And it seems like if you're committed to be loving, loving and merciful, you're not going to have a way to set standards that, that, that can move justice forward. They all seem to be in conflict. And then Christ comes. He's Jewish, in keeping with God's commitment to the Jewish people. He's a once-for-all sacrifice for all the nations. He is the perfect instance of a loving and merciful God. And yet his activity at the cross upholds God's righteousness and justice and moves that project into the future. And Paul looks and says, Wow. Who would have thought that God would find a way like this? It's because faithful commitment inspires, demands, requires creative, surprising, incredible ways of fulfillment. And this is why Paul says we're able to sum everything up in Christ. The master plan that when times were ripe, he might sum it all, all of his commitments, all of his love, all of his mercy, all of it would be summed up in this one person whose activity and actions would bring about the salvation of the world. And we know this too. I gotta be honest with you. Um, She's not here. She was running a half marathon this morning. So I can maybe, you know, talk about Aaron a little bit. But <laughs> I love her. She's an incredible woman. She's, um, she, uh, there's, not, there's very little that I can um, say I would be today without her. But man, I was scared. I was. I remember saying the vows right here. I'm being a little bit scared. These were some crazy vows, man. We were talking some crazy, crazy stuff. Richer for poorer. I'd prefer richer, thanks very much. Um, You know, sickness and health. (laughs) As someone who's in ministry, I know what happens when you lose your health, and it's ugly. A lot of different things you say to that person. And yet I can also say, today, seven and a half years in, that I have never been more satisfied and more joyful by anything in my life than finding a way to fulfill my commitment to her. It hasn't been easy, always. Sometimes it's really challenging. 
And sometimes I got to dig deep and try and figure something out that new to, to make it happen, to make it work. Sometimes I got to, you know, go back to the drawing board and think, well, this isn't happening, so we've got to do... Why? Why do I have to do that? Because I am faithfully committed to her. And what I find is, is in the working of that out, I am more satisfied and more joyful than I've ever been. And you guys know, you saw me growing up, you know how much fun I had (laughs) before I got married. I put it this way in your notes, creative fulfillment of an impossible project is the source of deep joy and satisfaction for human beings. Creative fulfillment of an impossible project is the source of deep joy and satisfaction for human beings. I suggest to you that marriage and child rearing and careers and a faithful human life are all impossible projects. If you were to ask a person, we have so many in in our congregation, who's nearing the end of life and is looking back And if they could look at all of the ins and outs and and the changes and the confusions and the varieties, all the things that had gone on as they tried to complete the projects of their life, and and, and they were able to go back and tell themselves when they were young, they'd say, this is crazy, it's impossible, it can't be done. It's nuts, you have no idea what you're in for. And yet, in the working of that out, the creativity and and, and the challenge of working that out, we become who God called us to be. And we find in that that we become everything that we were destined to become. I have a friend, John, who um, his wife died of multiple sclerosis and he, uh, he suffered with her for you know, 15 years when she really, there were 15 years after she was stopped being able to speak and move before she finally died. And I remember talking to him once and he said, man, if I, if, if, if I were to, to go back to that young man who was about to marry her, and tell him what was coming, that young man would have run away. And I am so glad he didn't. Brothers and sisters, do not buy into the lie that keeping your options open is the secret to human life. That it's the way that we become happy. That it's the way we become satisfied. That if we just have enough freedom and enough choices, then we're going to be happy. We're going to be good. It's, we're going to look back at, after, you know, I guess now 70 years, depending. We're going to look back and, 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 and think that it was great. That's not true. That's not how God lives. And friends, we are built out of his nature. And so what's true for God about what makes the divine life joyful and and infinite and perfect is also true for us. And it's built out of commitment. Don't take my word for it. If you're not in commitment right now, of any kind, take a step. You know, last week we introduced small groups. You can sign up again this week. I sent a letter. Um, We really do want people to make commitments to each other. Just 10 weeks. Go ahead, get out there, do it. Or maybe there's something else in your life, you know, a career choice, um, a family choice, something that you, and you're wondering whether or not you're going to go for it. Maybe it's a church choice, right? And you're wondering what it's going to take. Well, I'm telling you, friends, you will not regret when you commit with God. That said, you don't necessarily have to do it today. Some of us aren't right. Some of us aren't ready 
to, you know, some of us, uh, frankly, have too much commitment in our lives. Um, we're committed in too many different ways, and we're trying to creatively fulfill all of them, and we find ourselves just, just bowled out, finished, done, you know, put me back to bed. Some of us are too committed at work. Some of us are too committed at church. Some of us are already invested in great commitments. And, and, and if you are, leave those. Do those. Fulfill those. Some of you, your commitments right now are costing you too much. Well, I don't want to add anything else to your plate. But I do want to say this. Think about your life. Are the commitments that you are committed to the right ones? Are your priorities right? Or are you committed to a whole bunch of different things that really you probably shouldn't be? We live, uh, friends, in a culture that utterly, utterly rejects commitment. It's changing us as people. It's changing our kids. It's changing um, our lives and, and the way they look. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is what would be different? What would be different if instead people were in it for the long haul? What would be different if everyone said, when I go in, I am going in all the way. What would be different in our community here? What would be different in Orange County? What would be different in, in our families, in our lives? If when we went for it, we went all the way. My guess is, my guess is, that we would be deeply, deeply satisfied and deeply, deeply joyful because we would be living the divine life after him. If you're not committed, commit. If you're too committed, slow down. And think, what's it going to be like when this place is like the nature and character of God, characterized by those whose faithful commitment inspires creative fulfillment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you commit your commitments to, to variety and to, and to unity in the way that you created the world, your, your commitments to to the people of Israel, your commitments to the nations, your commitment to love, to justice, your commitments all over. We marvel at the way that you fulfill them. We pray, God, that we will live like you. We will reject the lies. We will instead find that our commitments bring us joy and satisfaction as your commitments bring you joy and satisfaction. We pray that this church will be a sign, an arrow pointing to you. A place that stands out from a culture that just continues to keep its options open. God, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your son, your commitment to us in and through him. We pray that our lives will reflect his. And in his name we pray. Amen.